Well, this morning I'm going to encourage you to listen fast. We're going to cover Nehemiah chapter 7 to Nehemiah chapter 10 today. And so um, for those of you that have commented on how you've enjoyed this kind of verse-by-verse walk through Nehemiah, uh, listen, we're going to do the same thing. We're just going to cover a lot more territory. So we're not going to look at every single verse. And part of that is there are two really long lists of names, and I don't want to embarrass myself by trying to get all these Jewish names right. So we're going to take a little bit of liberty, and we're going to pass a little bit more quickly over the census information that's listed there. Now, we're um, continuing through Nehemiah, and we'll begin in chapter 7, but uh, this series through Nehemiah is reinforcing, and it's really been quite, quite a thing to behold, how things that we're talking about as a church for our vision for the future, and things that Nehemiah dealt with, they they go together like this. It's an amazing thing. And so when we talk about our mission to build strong families where every person is encouraged to put Christ first, uh, we see that emphasis this morning in a really pretty fascinating way. I, I don't know that it could be more explicit. And so we, we have talked about not just a mission to build strong families, but a strategy to build strong. And so we've used the word build as an acronym. And uh, you've heard this before, but we want to we want to, you're going to hear it a lot because we want to drill it down. You know, they tell you um, if you're in business and you, you're, you're going to visit somebody, you need to have an elevator speech. And the problem is, how do you summarize what a church does? You know, the, if you look at most churches' org charts, it's terribly complex. And so what we're trying to do with our Build Strong strategy is to give people a really easy way to talk about what we do as a church. And what we do as a church really is three actions and two results. We, we think that the Bible's crystal clear that we should believe together and worship. Um, that's something that the Bible says. If we love Jesus, we love his bride. We don't forsake assembling together. So believing together in worship is important. And we're going to see that in a very special way in the book of Nehemiah today. We think it's important for believers to understand together in groups. Uh, Nehemiah had a big task, building a wall. And so he broke people up into groups to take this big project and to break it down into smaller bite-sized chunks. Our project is not building a wall. It's discipling the world. That's a big job. And one of the ways that we do discipleship is through groups, Sunday schools, small groups, theology breakfast. And so we think it's important not just to believe in together in worship, but to understand in groups. Uh, the natural um, uh, result of being involved in a church is finding a way to invest yourself, your time, your talent, your resources, your treasures. We just talked about that. We give back because God has invested in us, and we want to be fully vested in God. So we give not so like we get our name on a roll that says, you know, so-and-so, top giver. That's not why we do it. We do it because God has blessed us and we want to be a blessing to others. The results of those three things, if we're in worship, in groups, and we're finding a way to serve, to give, to encourage, is that we will naturally be living out the gospel and learning in relationship to depend upon each other as a family. And so this, um, this believe together in worship, we're going to see in, a, I think, a very powerful way in the book of Nehemiah. So we're going to cover 7 through 10. If you don't have a copy of uh, the scriptures, you can use the Bible in front of you. You can see the Wi-Fi access password if you want to pull it up on your, um, your smartphone. But in the Pew Bible, it'll be page 346. And here's the amazing thing. We've talked for weeks about all these problems that Nehemiah has faced. Chapter 4 and 6, he's surrounded by his enemies. There's all kinds of intrigue. There's assassination attempts, and Nehemiah just keeps on going. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 5, there's a problem inside where the wealthy people inside the city are taking advantage of the poorer people. And for the only time in the construction project, Nehemiah says, all right, we need to have a business meeting. We need to fix this. This isn't right. But the building continues. Chapter 6, verse 15. The wall is done, and they do the whole project in 52 days. So this is not a government project. 
52 days taking unskilled people and getting it done. You just have to imagine. They've lived for 90 years in a busted up city and they have in 52 days. You have to sit there and go, why did we live this way for 90 years? Well, it was not God's timing. And, 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 and the right leadership was not in place. Everything just needed to come together. And they get it, they get it done. And that's exactly where we start in chapter 7, verse 1. I'll read verses 1 through 5. I'm reading from the Holman Christian Standard uh, Translation. The Bible says this, When the walls had been rebuilt, and I had the doors installed, the gatekeeper, singers, and Levites were appointed. Then I put my brother Hanani in charge of Jerusalem, along with Hananiah, commander of the fortress. And I love the way they talk about this. Because he was a faithful man, and he feared God more than most. What an awesome reputation that the reason this guy is chosen isn't because of his resume, it's because of his godliness. That should be the case for every position. Uh, it doesn't matter. What, whatever is the lowest position, like pulling weeds in the garden at church, you should be the, the church weed puller because you're godly. That's the chief requirement in God's family is to look like him. And so you have this reputation for godliness. I put Hananiah, commander of the fortress, because he was a faithful man who feared God more than most. I said to them, do not open the gates of Jerusalem until the sun is hot and let the doors be shut and securely fastened while the guards are on duty. Station the citizens of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some at their homes. The city was large and spacious. That sounds good. But there were few people in it and no houses had been built yet. Then my God put into my mind to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the people to be registered by genealogy. I found the genealogical record of those who came back first, and I found the following written in it. Nehemiah has, our first point, completed the construction project, and now he commissions a census. You see, here's the thing that's happening. This is no duplicity, but Nehemiah knew until the walls get built, any grander plans that he had for what was going to happen would not be successful. So now, 52 days, the wall is done. Now Nehemiah can go to phase two. Now Nehemiah can go to the next level. And it says in verses one through five that the city is built. I mean, the walls are built. There's nobody living in it. And so he is wanting to revivify, to revive Jerusalem. And so they're going to start telling people, hey, it's a good idea to live close to the temple. So when it's raining and you go, well, I'm not going to go to church today, you don't have an excuse. You can, you can use the covered walkway and you can get right there. It's good for God's city to be populated with God's people. And so one of the things he wants to do is he wants to make sure that the gates function well. Now here's the thing that's really interesting. Who does he put in charge of the gates? Well, he says it's gatekeepers, but then he says the singers and the Levites. Well, where do the singers sing? At the temple. Where do the Levites do their thing? At their temple. And he says specifically, I want you to keep the door shut. Now, think about this. Why would you keep the door shut to a city? Don't you want the... I mean, if you're under attack, you understand you keep the door shut. Why would you keep them shut under normal circumstances? There was some trade, and there were some things that were happening that were not above board. And Nehemiah wanted to make the business people coming into town, wait. 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 He said, don't open the gates until the sun is hot. Now, I don't know what time that is. Sometimes in the summertime, it's like 8 o'clock in the morning, you know. But he is trying to say, guys, listen, now that, the, now that the walls are built, the walls are not just for defense. The walls are for separation. God's people are to be different. And, and, and while the temptation is for us to bow to the almighty dollar, it, 
the almighty shekel for them. He said, listen, we're not all about trade. I don't mind making them wait on us because we're going to be different. And I want everyone to have their devotions before we open up the gates for business. I want everyone to realize we're separate, we're different. And so he puts religious people in charge of the gates. This is not a civic job anymore. The Levites and the singers are in, part of it, are in charge of it because they get it. That's what Nehemiah says. He wants to find a census because he wants to repopulate the city. And so he finds a census that Ezra uh, put together in Ezra chapter 2. When Ezra came back from the Babylonian captivity with people, um, he has this list and Nehemiah finds it. And here's the deal. Why is this census so important? Well, it depends on who you want to put in the city. And so Nehemiah wants to validate their Jewish credentials before they get to move in. This is God's city uh, for the Jews, and he wants to make sure that everything is right. Who gets in? Who gets out? And we begin to see that Nehemiah's focus changes from the walls to being very concerned about purity and very concerned about temple worship. And this has been his goal all along. None of the religious reforms, none of the revival that's about to fall from heaven is possible when the walls are built down. So the walls are a tool to get to what's most important. Now let me say this. We've been talking about vision, and you, people know we're going to a capital campaign. I got people going, when's you going to talk about the building? I want to talk about the building. And I said, I go, really? The Bible gives us no instruction on what kind of building we're supposed to build unless we want to build a tabernacle. And then we don't get to choose. Like God dictates how the tabernacle is built. You don't get to deviate. It's purple cloths and it's this size room. And we're like, we don't like that size room. God says, tough. This is how I want my tabernacle built. The New Testament church, where did they meet? People's homes. I don't hear anybody saying, hey, let's make that our church model. Let's be like the New Testament church and make that our church model. So the point is this. Who we are much more important than where we meet. Much more important than where we meet. The, the, the building is simply a tool, okay? We are the church. We get that? We're the church, and we meet in a church building, but the building is not the church. And we could probably come up with 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 different ways to design a church building that's going to work for us. But there's, there's only one way that we can be the people that we need to be. There's a reason out of 300 churches in Rock Hill, Northside Baptist Church is here because there's something that we can do that 299 other churches can't. There's a commission for us to fill. There's a people for us to reach. There are people who will be loved and affirmed and encouraged and baptized and called missions and take the next step with the Lord here and not at 299 other churches because this is the community that God wants to use to reach people. So we're going to talk about the building, but we're going to talk about the building as something else. Who we are, the vision of who we want to be is really what is most important. And I have no idea why I got off on that. Sorry. <laughs> Nehemiah is saying essentially that the ethnic and the religious and the moral and the ritual reforms are much more important than building the wall. The wall was a means to the end in the same way that our building is a means to an end. They are not the end in themselves. And one of the things that's neat from this point in Nehemiah chapter 7 is uh, with, with one or two exceptions, Nehemiah disappears from the rest of the book by his name. There's 13 chapters in Nehemiah. And in Nehemiah chapter 7, he kind of taps out because now that it's religious reforms, Nehemiah has a uh, figurehead role to play as the governor. But he says, um, I need a priest. And Ezra goes, yeah, I'm here. And Ezra now plays a different role. And Nehemiah fades into the background. What amazing humility for this man that has kind of done what has not been done in 90 years to kind of just 
graciously delegate and kind of step into the background and say, there are other people with gifts and talents and abilities who God is raising up to do something new here. That's one of the things that's cool about relocation. We're going we're gonna to realize our mission and be faithful to our mission in new ways that we don't even realize here. And God's going to raise people up. It's going to be a neat thing. And so uh, in, at the end of chapter 7, Nehemiah's got this census. The work is all done. Everybody had come into the city, and they go back to their homes. And Nehemiah says, uh, wait just a second, chapter 8. Uh, there's something important that's coming up. And so uh, some good stuff. Uh, but we see uh, number 2 that is part of this urban renewal project. Ezra steps up, and he brings counsel from God's word. Now, the seventh month is really important. Here's, here's, kind, of the, um, here's kind of the chronology. On the 25th day of the sixth month, okay? Figure this out. The 25th day of the sixth month is when the walls are done. On the first day of the seventh month, there is a holy assembly, kind of mandated by the Jewish calendar. So they have a five-day siesta. You know, they get a chance to get all the dust out from under their fingernails, and go home and see their family, tend to their garden, do whatever, and then they're to come back. And so that's where we pick up uh, in chapter uh, 8, verse 1. Uh, the rest of chapter 7, if you take a peek at it, it's just a big, long list of names, and I would get tongue-tied trying to get through all of them. But it is um, the census that Nehemiah has said that he has found. But chapter 8, verse 1, we see some interesting things here. It says, When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns... All the people came back and gathered together at the square in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra. They asked Ezra. Ezra, this is not his concoction. They asked. They requested. They, they said, please come. They asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had given Israel. On the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. That means any kid that was old enough to understand the word was there. And while he was facing the square in front of the water gate, he read out of it from daybreak until noon before the men, women, and all of those who could understand. Evidently, Ezra's people didn't mind a sermon that was a little longer than usual. From daybreak until noon, because noon was when Jackson's cafeteria opened, so they all had to get to, they had to get to Jackson's. <clears throat> so look what it says. I mean, not only did he read from daybreak till noon, it says all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Now, all right, I'm, I'm going to get off track here for a second. I'm talking about sermon length, okay? I had this conversation with somebody. Somebody says, you know, you know, the average kid's attention span is like three minutes. Really? Really? Give a kid a video game, what's going to happen? He will skip the next seven days' worth of meals as long as that thing has a battery charge in it. And so, like, when it's something important like school or church then kids have a really small attention span. But when it comes to like video games, movies, or doing what they want to, they have unlimited attention span. And so let's just be real, okay? We dumb down for everybody, including ourselves. These people listened attentively to a six-hour sermon. I'm not asking you to do that. I'm just asking you to hang in for 35 minutes, okay? But don't, don't listen to the experts today. That just means that they have a degree and they make a lot of money and they speak a lot of nonsense. So kids have a full attention span, and you have a full attention span for whatever you want. Half hour a sermon is too long, but all day fishing, man, I can handle that. And you haven't caught anything? You want to talk about an attention span? you got an amazing attention span if you can watch your line in the water for eight hours and not have anything to show for it. So the seventh month is, 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 is special. It says specifically they've had this five-day 
kind of siesta to come back for this holy assembly. And the seventh month is special for a particular reason. There is um, the first day of holy assembly. On the tenth day of the seventh month is something that we know as the Day of Atonement. And then on the fifteenth of the month is a festival called the Feast of Booths. Now, it seems uh, clear that this was a unspoken but um, arbitrary deadline for Nehemiah. He didn't say, guys, we've got to be done by the end of the sixth month. Actually, they got done five five days earlier. So, woo-woo, they're ahead of time, on quote, you know, on target, all that kind of stuff. And here's how we know that. When Ezra comes to, to preach, and, and we'll see this in just a second, they have this huge platform built for him. It, it's got a podium up top, and he's well up, because, I mean, you've got all of these people, like the first megachurch. Everybody is there, you know? The entire city is there to hear Ezra read the law, and you sit there and you go, how are they going to see him? How are they going to hear him? Well, they built this platform. So while the work has been exclusively focused on building the walls, guess what three or four guys had the special privilege of doing? Building this pulpit. It didn't just, it didn't just happen overnight. There was some forethought that went into it. So Nehemiah, while the work on the wall was going, and everything, he's exclusively focused on this. He's, he's building a pulpit for what is next. He's preparing for the next step. It's just an awesome thing to see. And so they have this assembly, and we see some amazing things that happen. They read from the law, the Pentateuch, specifically Deuteronomy. They do it for hours, and they don't just read it. They explain it. Listen to what it says. Verse 4, Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform made for this purpose. Mattathiah, Shema, Anaiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maaseiah stood beside him on his right. And to his left were Pediah, Mishael, Melchijah, Hashum, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam. That's why we didn't read chapter 7. So Ezra, he opened the book in full view of all the people since he was elevated above everyone. And as he opened it, all the people stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And with their hands uplifted, all the people said, Amen, Amen. And then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Now, I'm not trying to turn you all into Baptocostals, okay? Here's the deal. If you know anything about ancient Near Eastern religion, it is very bodily. I mean, it's just expressed bodily. In, in, in Jerusalem, they have a place called the Wailing Wall because when you're praying for something that's heavy, you make it clear what you're praying about because you wail, you weep before God. And so they, they raise their hand, they put their feet to the ground, and when things are really bad, they wear like, like a, a burlap sack and they pour ashes on their heads. They're just very uh, bodily. Their, their, their repentance and their excitement, their exuberance is demonstrated through not being able to sit still. They've got something going on. So here's the thing. There are some of you that are a little more free with your expression of worship. Hear me clearly. That's okay. So those of you that have a problem with that, you are the, the ones, that, the, the few that are a little more expressive, they're not the ones with the problem. The problem is the ones who think that that's the problem. So that doesn't mean you have to do this or jump or do anything. You can hold on to the pew, you can hold your Bible, you can cross your arms, you can do whatever. But we can't, different strokes for different folks. We can't look down on people who are maybe a little more physically expressive in their um, kind of way that they talk about, about worship. And so they didn't just read it, they explained it. He's got all these people on his right and on his left with these weird names. And, and, and the reason he needs all these people up there, he's got a teaching team, is because the, the Old Testament scriptures were written in Hebrew, and none of the people spoke Hebrew anymore. Because when they got captured and taken into captivity, they learned Aramaic. 
So if Ezra's going to read God's word, he's going to read it in Hebrew. But then he's got these teams of people going out among the crowd and translating it into Aramaic because it's not just enough to hear the word of God. You have to understand it. And one of the things that we see here is that ignorance makes it impossible to serve and please God. We're going to see lightning strike here in just a second. And the people are going to be heartbroken out of all of the ways that they have been disobedient to God that they didn't even know about. And as God's word is read and they hear God's desire to bless his people and that the only reason they're not receiving God's blessings is because they have rebelled, they're heartbroken. They go, look at the condition we're in. And you know what the worst thing is? Is when you realize that the wretched condition you're in is your own fault. There is no one else to blame. And so their ignorance has made it impossible for them to serve and please God. And as we see as a consequence of this reason, this, this reading, you cannot know what you don't know. And part of the purpose of the proclamation of God's word is to help us know what we all should know, to make us accountable, to give us the standard to which we're aiming for. So our third point, Ezra's counsel brings a God-wrought conviction and confession of sin. It wasn't just read. It wasn't just understood. It had a deep impact. Uh, We're going to look at verses 9 and 10 of chapter 8 and verse 12. Look at what it says here. Nehemiah 8, verse 9 and 10. They've read it, and the people respond. Verse 9, Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and the scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to all of them, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go and eat what is rich, drink what is sweet, and send portions to those who have nothing prepared, since today is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, because the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, since today is holy. Do not grieve. And then all the people began to eat and drink and send portions and have a great celebration. Why? Because they had understood the words that were explained to them. Listen, they don't even explain the words. They hear the words, and they start to weep because they realize all of the ways that they have been unfaithful to God. And Nehemiah and Ezra go, Wait, 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 wait. Conviction and confession is good, but today is supposed to be a celebration. We're supposed to, God is, God is happy that you're broken. And that sounds like really mean-spirited. But he says something really strange in verse 10. He says, don't, don't weep because the joy of the Lord is your strength. Here's what he's saying. That brokenness and that desperation that you sense in your heart is the most precious thing that can ever happen to you. Because what that means is that you are in the process of renewing your relationship with God. From God's side, it's always been, he's there. He's ready. The person who turns away in the relationship is you. And when there's that brokenness, you can know that God is joyful because that relationship is being restored. And that should strengthen and encourage you. God's not, it's about time. He's not, you know, you know do penance for 10 years. You've been faithful for, unfaithful for 50 Why don't you do penance for 10 years and then I'll see if I'll take you back. No, God responds to repentance and brokenness like that. And so he says, be encouraged. Let it strengthen you that your relationship with God is being renewed. Not because God has changed, but because you're finally realizing you're the one who's out of fellowship with God. And he's willing to have you back if you will but repent and place your trust in him. I love that. It's such a beautiful thing to see. God is rejoicing over your repentance. So praise God that not only have you heard, but you have responded. 
Everybody wants the kind of revival that we'll see here in Nehemiah, but not everybody's willing to put the hard work in because true repentance, and if I say true repentance, that means that there is false repentance. True repentance that comes from God as opposed to false repentance that comes from man. True repentance will never be a reality apart from a sober-minded seriousness about Scripture. If you want revival and you don't want God's Word, good luck. Never going to happen. You want God's work without you saying no to the things that you should say no to and saying yes to the things that God wants you to say yes? Never going to happen. It's not just like some experience like Oprah pulling something out from under a chair or one of her things. Oh, woo-hoo! No, God tells us how it's laid out. We have to obey him. So we have to pay attention to his word to know how he wants us to obey. And when that happens, when we're serious about the Lord, then revival can happen. And as they hear all of the ways in which they have missed out on God's blessing, they found out, you know what? I have been too casual in my relationship with God. I have been too unconcerned about the things that God says that I should be concerned about. I have, uh, in my heart, had a deep-rooted unwillingness to allow God to be king because I want to do what I want to do. The place where these uh, Jews find themselves is not all that different from the places where we find ourselves. How do we know that they were repentant? Not simply because they cried. Crying is no mark of... um, Crying... Emotion is no mark of repentance because you can get over it just as quickly as you get into it. We see obedience on these people's parts. Look at verses 13 and 14. So the first day, Ezra reads the law. The people start freaking out. They're weeping and mourning. and says, no, 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 no. Today's the day of celebration. Day two, verse 13. On the second day, the family leaders of all the people, along with the priests and the Levites, assembled before Ezra the scribe to study the words of the law. First Bible study that we see in Nehemiah's book. And they found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the Israelites should dwell in booths during the festival of the seventh month. So they proclaimed and spread the news throughout their towns and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the hill country, bring back branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths just as it is written. They say, Hey, listen, uh, we've neglected the word for all this time. And it just so happens that it's September, October, and the Bible says in like a couple days we're supposed to like build these tents. We're supposed to build these little lean-tos. So uh, we're going to do it. All of us. Kids, parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, everybody from two years old to 92 years old. We're, gonna, we're not going to vote on it. We're going to do it because we want to be obedient to the Word. Look at verse 17 and 18. The whole community that had returned from exile made booths and lived in them. They had not celebrated like this from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day. And there was tremendous joy. Ezra read out of the book of the law of God every day, from the first day to the last. And the Israelites celebrated the festival for seven days. And on the eighth day, there was an assembly according to the ordinance. Much joy full participation and rejoicing in the fact that for the first time in a long time they had been fully obedient to what God wanted for them. And isn't that a crazy thing to think about? It says that they not celebrated in this way since Joshua. You know, Nehemiah is the last book of the Old Testament. The last book. It is the, it is the 
You can hear the hinge squeaking as the Old Testament book is closed. And it says they've not worshipped this way since Joshua. Well, where's Joshua? All the way at the beginning. The beginning conquest of the Holy Land. And it says for all this time. And you sit there and go, wow, that's a lot of time and not being obedient to the Lord. And I just go, okay, when was the last time you knew that you had been fully obedient to what God wanted you to do? When was that? What an awesome thing to know that what you were doing and what Scripture wanted you to do lined up. Now, chapter 9, verses 1 through 38, it's one big long prayer. And we're not going to get into that, but I will say this. uh, One of the things that's awesome about it, this is the time for the conviction and the confession of sin to really happen. After the celebration of a renewed relationship with God, chapter 9, verse, uh, verses 1 through 38, goes through this prayer. And it is the best. If you want to get a kind of an overview of the Old Testament, read Nehemiah chapter 9. You don't even need to read the, old, the whole Old Testament. Read Nehemiah chapter 9, and it recounts their whole history from the call of um, Abram to the um, slavery in Egypt to the rescue by Moses, the conquest by Joshua, the beginning of the, the judges and the kings to the exile. And basically, the recurring refrain is, we have been unfaithful and rebellious, but God has always been faithful. That is the story of the Old Testament in a nutshell. And so in chapter 9, you see this great prayer. It's the fullest recounting of Israel's past. And chapter 9, verse 38, closes with this admonition that, you know what, in view of all of this, in view of God renewing a relationship with us and us praying this prayer of confession and repentance, we're going to cut a covenant. We're going to make a covenant. And in chapter 10, verses 1 through 27, it says all of the leaders of the people are going to kind of initiate this covenant. So, you know, the governor and the priests and the Levites and all the city officials, they're going to sign it. But in verse 28, we see that, uh, 28 and 29, we see that this covenant was something that impacted the entire community. Verse 28, the rest of the people, the priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, and temple servants, along with their wives, sons, and daughters, everyone who is able to understand and who has separated themselves from the surrounding peoples to obey the law of God, join with their noble brothers and commit themselves with a oath to follow the law of God given through God's servant Moses and to carefully obey all the commands, ordinances, and statutes of Yahweh our Lord. They say, we're going to make it, we're going to have a solemn assembly where we're going to commit to doing what God wants us to do. And what are they committing to do? All the things that God has said in the law. But then they recognize that there's a thing called a besetting sin. Do you know what a besetting sin is? It's the one that's got its hooks in you and it's really hard to get the barb out. Okay? You ever, you know, you catch a fish and they're not really easy to get off the hook. That's the whole point. You got a little barb that when it gets in there, you got to find a way to get that barb out. There are some sins that are not a temptation for you whatsoever. Some of you are so kind, I can't ever imagine you getting angry. There are other people, we call them hotheads. You know what happens? Like, you don't say hi to them the right way. And they're like, somebody they don't know cuts them off in traffic and their day is ruined because they are, they're a hothead. And so here's what happens. A hothead's besetting sin is anger. And it's different for everybody. It might be pride. It might be, um, it might be all kinds of things. And so they are committing to be faithful to all things. But they go, you know what? There's three things in particular we really need to pay special attention to. So the remainder of chapter 10, they call those out. You know what they are? Look at chapter 10, verse 30. We will not give our daughters in marriage to the surrounding peoples, and we will not take their daughters as, their, as wives for our sons. What are they saying they're going to do? 
they're saying that they are going to take God's plan for marriage seriously. They're going to do marriage God's way. What was the problem with Israel? Is that they never really fully understood what it meant to be in the world, but not of it. To be separate from the pagan nations around them. And the reason it was not, (laughs) the reason they were not to marry uh, women from surrounding countries wasn't because they weren't good looking. One, because they didn't have wealth and it might be beneficial. No, it was because they worshipped foreign gods. So we think it's really novel to say we want to be a church that builds strong families. Do you know what? This emphasis on family ministry, it's nothing new. It goes back to King Solomon. Solomon, the wisest man in the world, ended up with a terrible testimony because who he married. He divided his heart and allegiance from Yahweh alone to all the gods of his wives. And so listen, here's the thing. As we go into this vision, as we, we begin to understand the impact and the implications that it has, it means that every Sunday, husband and wife, when you come to church, it's a chance for you to renew your vows. Every Sunday. Now, you know what? Some of you need it. You need to say, I forgive you. You need to say, yes, I understand. I fully understand that you are not perfect. Yes, I fully understand that you are not God. We need to renew our vows. Listen, if, if, if Christians would have done family better and stood for what is right, stronger, our country may not be in the problem mess that it is. Young people, we got a lot of young ones here, all right? And I know, like, uh, if you're, like, single digits, like, if I say the M word, marriage, you're like, ew, okay? Listen. Listen to, you know, uh, in the words of a wise man from the Princess Bride, listen to me now and hear me later. Um, Don't marry someone who is less committed to Christ than you are. It will mess you up. And you may not get out of the mess that you're in for decades. And I know you sit there and go, you're, you're an old man. Listen, almost every week I have someone who sits in my office. And listen, they said for better or for worse, not me. And they know what the for worse is. They got to be committed. They said the words before God and before witnesses. So just because he's a jerk doesn't mean you get to go. Jesus suffered for you, well, maybe you're going to suffer in your marriage. And maybe you should have asked God who he wanted you to marry. It's too late now. You got to be faithful to your vows. You got to do it for your kids. You got to do it for society. Because I'll tell you, divorce and adultery is a bigger threat to the church in America than homosexuality is. And we need to be just as offended at people who are not serious to the vows as people that think marriage is defined as something else. We we need to be um, equal opportunity um, uh, sticklers when it comes to sin. Just because yours is heterosexual, well, you get a pass. Baloney! It's sin, and it's not right. So young ones, listen, I don't care how fine she is. I don't care how good he smells. If he does not love Jesus, don't Facebook friend him. Don't text him. Don't, don't do anything. Don't get that ball rolling downhill at all. Because if you're going to build a strong marriage, a strong family, you've got to have a partner. There is no way for you. You are not strong enough to overcome the dead weight of a spouse who doesn't want to build in the same direction, you are not going to do it. Not going to do it. And so, young ones, ask your mom and dad what it means that we're talking about today. Don't marry somebody who doesn't love Jesus more than you. So listen, if you're married, every Sunday is a chance for you to renew your vows. If you're not married, you can make a commitment today. That uh, Listen, make sure mom and dad approve. And mom and dad, don't lower the standards because he's got a lot of money. Don't do it because, you know, hey, wouldn't it be nice to be married to this family? 
you know, he's connected. Don't do it. And so if you're single, just make a commitment to not do it. Because the idea is that Christians will marry Christians and they'll set up Christian homes. And we have Christians marrying Christians and we don't have a lot of Christian homes in our culture anymore. Second thing that they committed to, in verse 31, when the surrounding peoples bring merchandise or any kind of grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day. We will also leave the land uncultivated in the seventh year and we will cancel every debt. The second thing that they committed to do was to take seriously the Sabbath and the Sabbath year. The Sabbath day and the Sabbath year. The Sabbath day occurred once a week. The Sabbath year occurred once every seven years. And here's the thing. They, they had to address the loophole. They had the, ten, they had the Ten Commandments. But did you see the way they restated this? See, you had pagan people that had no problem selling stuff on, on the Sabbath. And so they'd come into Jerusalem, set up their little shops, and we would buy for them and say... You know, hey, we're innocent because we're not working on the Sabbath. They are, but we're going to buy, buy from them, but we're not, we're not working. And so you know what? That's probably not the smartest and wisest way for us to fulfill the spirit of the law. But here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to make the Sabbath special. We're not even going to buy from people who are not Jews when they come set up shop on the Sabbath. Not going to do it. The Sabbath is for the Lord. And so they, they also said, whenever every seven year rolls around, we're not going to work on our farms and we're going to cancel every debt. If you're not gonna, if you're gonna quit your job every seven years, what must you believe? You have a really good savings account. No, um, you have to believe that God will provide. And the problem is, you know, all these years of continued employment, you're not so convinced that you need God to provide because you're doing a pretty good job yourself. And if you're gonna stop working, and trust that in that six year, God's gonna give you enough not just for this year, but the next year and the year after that, as your fields get going again. You better have a pretty strong trust that God's going to provide for you. To cancel every debt, but he owes me $50,000. I don't care. Seventh year, debts, are, debts go free. Everything goes back to zero. Because God will provide, not the person that owes you money. So when we talk about the Sabbath, there's a lot of things we get off, off sidetracked with. This is not about legalistic interpretation of what you can't do, what you can do, fulfillment of duty. It's about this. The Sabbath is a reminder that the most important thing that has been done for us has been done in Christ. We don't have to work to secure our salvation. God has done it, and we can rest in him. So if you go home and you throw a football around today, you can trust that you're not violating the Sabbath rule by enjoying some recreation. As a matter of fact, it might be that you're so secure in your salvation in Christ that you can actually enjoy life for a little bit. Because the rat race, guess what? It starts again tomorrow. In chapter 10, verses 32 through 39, it's a long passage. I'm, I'm not going to read it. It's going to be on the screen here just for the sake of time. But they, they make a promise that not only are they going to do marriage God's way, not only are they going to um, honor the Sabbath day and the Sabbath year, but they are going to demonstrate the reality of what it means to live corporately by taking seriously the support of the temple. So in chapter 10, verses 32 through 39, they go through this whole long list of all these different tithes. We're going to bring silver, and we're going to bring gold, and we're going to bring wood, and we're going to bring dough, and we're going to bring this, and we're going to bring that. Listen, be grateful be grateful that you don't grow up under the Old Testament because in the Old Testament, it was far more than 10%. Because they, they were a nation under God, so all of the civic taxes that they got were part of their religious obligation. If you wanted to give like an Old Testament saint would give, it'd be closer to 35 or 40%. 10% sounds a lot better right now, doesn't it? Well, let me, let me stop you here for a second. We, we ran our quarter two uh, giving statements, and I'm, I'm, I know I'm going to step on toes, but that's all right. Um, if our church 
gave like it was supposed to give, we wouldn't have to have a capital campaign. Do you realize that? Our budget would be about most $1.8 million. We're a $600,000 budget. So we'd have $1.2 million left over at the end of the budget year, which makes the whole conversation about financing and campaign fundraising moot. We have 850 people on our church roll. We have a little bit over 200 people that give anything. We got, we got one sweet kid gave 38, 38 cents to the church this, the first six months of 2015. We don't know who it is. We just know what the amount is. Some, some kid is putting pocket change in, and he counts as one of the people who gives to our church. Now, on any given Sunday, we're probably a church of somewhere between 350 and 400 people. But even the people that benefit from the ministry of our church don't support the ministry of the church. I don't say that to make you guilty. I say that to say that there's some of you out there that have an awesome opportunity in front of you. You have the opportunity to give a little bit of your money and show how you are dependent upon God, not on your employer for your livelihood. It's an amazingly liberating thing because every week you look at your bills and you look at your money and you go, hmm, yeah, I'm really tempted to skip this week. But if you don't and you're faithful to God, you'll find amazingly that the pot never runs out of oil. You always have enough to get done what you need to get done. So here's the thing. We talk about these things and what we want to do. We want to believe together in worship. We want to see the kind of energy in worship and the kind of repentance and conviction that they have here. We want to build strong families. So when he says we're not going to intermarry, we go, amen. We like that. We want to see people invest. We want to see people invest their time, their talent, their treasures, their resources. And he's saying the people made a commitment to support the temple generously. Not a need for anything. And I see so many things in Nehemiah's leadership that is important for us in our day and age. They looked at everything they had, their time, their life, their health, their wealth, their abilities, their influence, as gifts from God that they were to steward for his glory and for the betterment of people. God always had first claim on everything that they had. And so in some ways, while the New Testament Jews would never have stated it this way, we need to do the very thing that they were wanting to do. Their desire in Nehemiah's day was to put Christ first in all things. Why do we say what we say about marriage? Because marriage ultimately isn't about you and your spouse. It's about Christ and his bride. Why do we say that it's important for you to support the temple? We don't have a temple nowadays. But the Bible says, forsake not your assembling together. And if the Bible expects you to show up, it expects you to give up. Why do we say that it's you know, so important to uh, remember the Sabbath? Because... The Sabbath is a reminder that God has provided everything, life and breath and redemption. There is nothing that we have provided for ourselves. And so the whole point in all of these commandments is that Christ be first, that we are known as a people who live unashamedly and explicitly for the Lord. And that shows up in our pocketbook. That shows up in our daytimer. That shows up in our marriages. That shows up in our parenting. That shows up Monday through Friday in our workplace. That shows up in our neighborhood. Because we can't piecemeal our lives together and, and be faithful here and not faithful here and say, God, just be happy with what you get. Because he doesn't want a part of you. He wants all of you. And when you understand that, you're well on your way to putting Christ first. Pray with me, please. 
God, we do desire to put you first. And the truth is, um, our best spiritual desires get choked out by all kinds of things. We are victims of the good, and we consistently forsake the best. So God, there's even some among us here today that when they hear this language about putting Christ first, that they don't even know where to begin. Here's the great thing. You have said the joy of the Lord is our strength. So these people that are struggling here today, I pray that you would help them to understand whatever it is that they're going through right now. If you are tugging on their hearts and wrestling with their minds, that today even the discomfort that they're in right now can be a source of tremendous blessing if we just understand and commit to living with you as our Lord. So God, for those of us that perhaps are unclear or perhaps have just gotten off the path, God, may today be a day of renewal. For the rest of us, Lord, help us to understand that your plan really is the best idea. You tell us that in our mind, man plans his way. Lord, it's ultimately you who directs our steps. As we talk about building strong families and putting Christ first, we pray that your grace and your smile will be upon it and that you'll use this um, strategy and this vision to make our church even stronger in the future than it is right now. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for sending your son to be the sacrifice for our sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.